Okay, Jesse, my skin is still crawling at last week's loser murderer along with his tight vest. What's the story this week? The Christmas time disappearance of a woman in 1902 leads to the discovery of the most dastardly of villains, a turn of the century serial killer. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about tawdry women, scurrilous men, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And as always. I mean, I say and I was always a lot, but really, you guys, you knocked it out of the park again. We can't thank you enough for your wonderful reviews. And one of our wonderful listeners also told me that Spotify has just started allowing you to rate podcasts too. (gasps) You know what that means? Everyone who already did and got the old school stickers gets to do it again on Spotify for the new school stickers. I don't know if they have reviews. I think they might just have ratings, which are kind of different, but we appreciate whatever you guys do. We truly, truly, truly do. And we really, really appreciate you. So thank you absolutely so much for everything you've done for us this year. It has been a wild year. This has probably been the craziest year of our lives. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you for hanging with us. And your Christmas present is ye old Christmas love murder. I love a vintage. We get a little, a little vintage for your Christmas time joy. So let's get right to it, shall we? Very well. (laughs) Very well, indeed. On December 22nd, 1902, Edward King was surprised to find his brother-in-law, Alfred Knapp, turn up before the Christmas holiday. Only three days earlier, Mamie, Edward's wife, who happened to be Alfred's sister, had received a letter from Alfred's wife, Hannah, declining their invitation to spend the holiday together. Hannah sent her regrets, thanking Mamie for the invitation, but saying that Alfred had been sick and out of work. She did not feel like they could spare the expense of the trip this year. So it was indeed odd that Alfred came unannounced and stranger yet that his wife was not with him. When Edward asked him where exactly his wife was, Alfred answered that he had come to their house to ask him exactly the same question. Hannah had left him a note saying that she was coming to town and he had thought to follow her. Edward eyed his brother-in-law suspiciously. But he invited him in to have some supper and enjoy some sweet phonograph music. (laughs) Edward noted an edge of nervousness around Alfred's careful calmness and felt deep in his gut that his brother-in-law had done something ghastly. That (laughs) night, knowing that Alfred talked in his sleep, Edward put a cot in his father's room and instructed the old man to take careful note of any sleepy confessions Alfred might make. 
Unfortunately, Alfred's nocturnal utterances were completely incoherent. Edward invited Alfred to stay through the Christmas holiday, but it was not out of brotherly love. Instead, it was out of suspicion and a desire to keep an eye on the man. You see, Hannah was not the first wife of Alfred's to mysteriously disappear. And Edward believed his troubled brother-in-law was responsible for both women's deaths. Rut-row. Rut-row indeed. And also, he's a little bit of a Scooby-Doo himself here because he would end up launching an investigation that would uncover even more malicious murders, atrocious assaults, and even horrific crimes against children. Ooh, I don't like that. Sorry. Yeah, usually the old-timey ones don't get this bad. But I'll give you a trigger warning when it's coming up, guys. So Hannah, unfortunately, would not make it to Christmas dinner that year. But her death would help to unveil a dastardly serial killer who would have gone on to kill many, many more if given the chance. This is the true story of the the turn-of-the-century serial killer Alfred Knapp, dubbed the first celebrity serial killer in Southwest Ohio. Which is also so specific. (laughs) It is is really specific. So also, that's the name of the book that I used for a lot of my research. It is literally called The First Celebrity Serial Killer in Southwest Ohio by Richard O. Jones. Is it like a specific county as well? In the county of Burn in Southwest Ohio. Well, I had this book out and Nathaniel saw it and he was like... That's really oddly specific. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, when you do the story, can you just like call him like, you know, the first Midwest serial killer? And I was like, hello, H.H. Holmes. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that was Chicago. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I mean, can you just say Ohio? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe there was another one in in Northeast Ohio. (laughs) Who knows? There has to have been. Or like West or East or South, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Not just one. It's It's Southwest Ohio. Yes. Indeed. Oh my God. Wow. Wow. Well, this one singular (laughs) serial killer (laughs) of Southwest Ohio. Named Alfred Knapp was also known as Allie to his friends and family and was born in 1863 to a Civil War soldier named Cyrus and his homemaker wife, Susanna. After the war, Cyrus worked odd jobs and the family, which at this point had expanded to include at least five more siblings, lived rather nomadically. They lived all over the Midwest, spending most of their time in parts of Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio. Alfred's mother claimed that he was a perfect child, polite, obedient and tender-hearted until he was kicked in the head by a horse when he was six years old. That's not good. There we are with that head injury. The little boy remained unconscious for nearly two days before waking up a very different Alfred than before. We all know what a traumatic brain injury can indicate. Yeah, not to mention a kick in the face by a horse. Yeah. Well, after the injury, Alfred became erratic, bad-tempered, violent, and untruthful. Matters were certainly not helped by subsequent childhood injuries. Not long after the boy was kicked by the horse, Alfred also fell 12 feet from a porch that resulted in a terrible bout of brain fever. It's inflammation of the brain. It's like an old-timey phrase for it. Mm -hmm. Whoa. When he was only seven or eight, he climbed out of his bedroom window and disappeared for three days. No one in the family 
ever discovered where he had been or what he had been doing. He just like randomly came back this very small child one day. Whoa. And finally, when he started school at nine years old, he provoked another student and was violently beat in the head with a baseball bat. This injury resulted in Alfred being bedridden for several months. Though he eventually recovered, Alfred was then prone to seizures, fainting, hysterical fits, and screaming in his sleep. Yeah, it's not looking good for Allie. No, not looking good for Allie over here or his loved ones. At 13, he ran off with an accordion and joined the circus. I kid you not. He literally ran off to join the circus. And he did successfully? He did, but he did return home at some point. And then he decided that he wanted to become a preacher. There was always an element of performing that Alfred wanted to do. He would return to the circus later on where he would claim that he was a trapeze artist, but the records show he was more like a maintenance man, janitor type. Okay. He also worked at an opera house for a little while and he would tell stories of like being an actor, but it seems like there wasn't any truth to that either. He was always working in some sort of custodian aspect, but he wanted those things. He certainly craved the spotlight. So Alfred ran away once more and he was arrested for the first time at 16 years old for petty larceny. Alfred would end up in and out of jail for the rest of his life, often seeking out his nomadic family to temporarily live with them when he was free. In 1883, he finished a two-year term in a Joliet prison for an assault on a woman in broad daylight. Yeah. So Richard O. Jones put together his narrative from lots and lots and lots of papers from the time. And of course, they're very squeamish about writing about rape, but it seems like what happened was that he attempted a rape on a woman like in an alleyway and he was thwarted when people were walking by. Okay. When he was released, he moved in with his family, now in Terre Haute, Indiana. The now 20-year-old took a keen interest in 16-year-old next-door neighbor, Emma Staub, who was close friends with Alfred's teenage sisters, Mamie and Sadie. Gross. Yeah. Despite already having a prison record and clear personal issues, Alfred was a pretty handsome guy, I gotta say. In later pictures, he kind of looks like a sickly version of Charlie Hunnam. You know, the Sons of Anarchy guy. How sickly? I don't know. He just looks like there's something wrong with him. Maybe it's because I know what he did. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like, I don't want to do that to Charlie. Yeah, I don't think he looks like too bad, but okay. yeah, but I so, also yeah. don't want to do that to Charlie too, supposedly. He's a very nice guy who enjoys tea. Really? Yeah, he supposedly he's just like the most mega hot person. I know. In the world. He does seem really nice and really hot. So yeah, I don't want to, you yeah. know, compare him to an old timey serial killer. <laughs> but he's also brunette. And you have to remember too, it's 1883. Like this guy, when you see his actual picture, guys, you might be like, I don't know. He's like a six. In 1883, that's like an 11, you know? Inflation. Inflation. (laughs) Uh, His sisters also said that he could be very charming, at least initially with the women he courted. Enough so that he convinced 16-year-old Emma to marry him and he got a local Baptist pastor to take him under his wing. So I guess that the families both went to this church. And of course, Emma's family knew that he had been in prison already, I think twice at this point. And so they were a little concerned. 
And so their pastor was like, don't worry. You know, he's a good church goer. He's a good boy. I'm going to get him a job and I'm going to make sure that he gets on the right path. So he did get him a job as a coal hauler. But Alfred almost immediately was caught stealing a coat from the coal office and was fired. Well, he obviously, we know what he's getting from Santa because he poops it himself. He he is for sure getting that from Santa. So the pastor then got him a job cleaning and caretaking the parsonage. But once again, his thieving ways got the best of him and he was caught stealing jewelry and clothes from the home. This time, the pastor's Christian charity had reached its limit and he pressed charges and Alfred was booted back to the state pen. Young Emma followed suit and divorced him after three months of decidedly not blissful marriage. Yikes. Which is good for Emma. You got out, man. Yeah, her parents were probably like, babe. <laughs> babe. Babe. This was your practice marriage. Let's uh, let's do better let's the second time around. Let's go ahead and get this annulled. Yeah. At 23 years old, Alfred was released from the penitentiary in 1885 and married a young woman named Jenny Connors. So no one in the family knew exactly how the pair had met. There was some talk that maybe she worked at a bar that he had gone into. But one thing we do know is that they were married only three days after meeting, which might be a love murder record. I feel like it is. Three days. For the amount of time before you get married. Yeah, from meeting to married, three days. That's pretty close. So Jenny stuck by Alfred while he went to prison for three more terms during their marriage. The first was the result of stealing a pool table, which I don't even know how you do that. No, I mean, by yourself. (laughs) That's what I'm like. I'm not even mad. I'm kind of impressed that you tried. Like, how do you? Like, how many balls are on the table? 16, like eight in each pocket. And then like. (laughs) Or like, did he convince some guys like, hey, that's my pool table. Can you just move it for me? I I do not know how that happened. And they did not get into that in what I read. So I have no idea how he did that. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess this was actually December 1886. He went back to jail. And then the following year, he was released. He worked odd jobs at a boarding house, but was caught stealing from the residence as he does. And he was sent to a Cincinnati workhouse. The third offense was assaulting a woman on the street. It sounded like a very similar situation to what happened in Joliet. I mean, he's not slick at all. He's not. He clearly, because of the brain injuries, has some impulse control because he's not, it does not look like he's planning any of this. He's not sneaky. He's not getting away with it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, he was sent away for three and a half years and he was released in November of 1893. He was now 31 years old and Alfred once again joined the circus and this time he got his long-suffering wife, Jenny, to join him. I guess the name of the circus was Popcorn George Hand Circus. Popcorn George. (laughs) Popcorn George? Yeah, that was Popcorn George Hand's Circus. I guess his name was George Hand. They called him Popcorn George. I kind of wish it was Popcorn Hands. (laughs) Popcorn Hands Circus. I don't know. It's kind of creepy for some reason. Uh, So, yeah. Unfortunately, the performers soon found that their belongings were going missing. Alfred was also accused of creepy and forward behavior. He would hit on a lot of the performers, and he was even caught peeping in the women's dressing room. Unsurprisingly, he was once again fired. The couple moved back to Cincinnati, where Alfred's parents were living at the time. 
On August 7th, 1894, Alfred and Jenny walked from their apartment to the Cincinnati Inquirer office. There, Alfred said, he went in to inquire about a job and Jenny waited outside. He said that when he returned, she had vanished. Jenny's body was recovered from the Cincinnati Canal the very next day. She had been fished out of the Cincinnati Canal and she had a fractured skull, bruises on her head, deep cuts to her face and clear finger marks evident on her throat. So she definitely just fell in and drowned, right? Yes. Well, that's the crazy thing. For some reason, the police failed to see this as evidence of a murder. Instead, attributing the abrasions to the body's contact with broken glass at the bottom of the canal and the fractured skull to be the result of her body getting hit by a canal boat is what they said. Well, it's good to know that they they hated women back then too. (laughs) I think they extra hated women back then. And to their credit, I suppose, they did a bunch of interviews with Alfred, with Jenny's loved ones, with their family, and everyone did claim that Jenny had been depressed, or as they say in ye old times, she had melancholy. And they also said that Jenny was dismayed to have recently learned that she was pregnant because Alfred was out of work constantly, basically. He could not hold a job down. So they were completely broke. She had just found out she was pregnant. So she had told people that she was feeling really glum. Because of that, the police ruled it a suicide, saying that Jenny had jumped into the canal to end her life, which I'm sure women who are stuck in a unfortunate position with their pregnancies probably killed themselves a lot back in the day, you know? Yeah. Though brother-in-law Edward King agreed that Jenny had been sad, who wouldn't with a husband like Alfred, he harbored suspicions about Jenny's death, especially because basically Alfred had gone to them and was like, I don't know what happened. I was standing outside the Cincinnati Inquirer and then she was just gone and I don't know where she is. And he like spent the night with them and then the next day her body was found. But that night before when her body hadn't been found, Edward had been asking Alfred, like, hey, where do you think she went? Do you think that she's going to turn up? And he said, ah, they'll probably find her near the Wade Street Bridge, which is exactly where they discovered the body the next day. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he just, like, doesn't care. It doesn't seem like it. It really doesn't. Yeah. By the way, soon-to-be third wife, Hannah Goddard, which we opened with, was living with Mamie and Edward King at this time and even told officers that she had heard Jenny threaten suicide. So the authorities never even performed an autopsy. Whoa. I don't think Jenny had much family. So they were going by Alfred's family, who I think were trying to protect Alfred for the most part, you know? Yeah. So Alfred went on to stay with Edward, Mamie, and Hannah for a few weeks after Jenny's untimely death. 21-year-old Hannah was working at a restaurant when she had been befriended and taken in by Mamie King, who was the senior hostess at the establishment. Mamie and Edward adored Hannah, so they were alarmed to see sparks flying between she and Alfred. Though they did everything they could to dissuade Hannah from the marriage, she and Alfred were wed six weeks after Jenny's body had been discovered. Whoa, way too soon. Way too soon. And the couple eventually moved to Indianapolis in 1895. During that summer, Alfred attempted to kidnap a 13-year-old girl named Bessie Draper. So he had told this girl that he had an easy job for her and she like basically let her mom know that she was going to go, you know, do something 
for money. And then he led her down a dead end alley. And when she realized that she was trapped, she at that point tried to run by him to get out of the alleyway, of course. But he caught her by the throat and started choking her as she screamed. A passerby managed to distract Alfred and the girl got away. And later they basically set up a sting because she could say she remembered where she saw him. And it was like relatively close to his house because again, this is like impulse control. He's not making any strategic decisions here. No, at all. So they basically set up a sting where they had like the girl outside. And when he came out, she indicated who it was. And then they arrested him. And one piece of incriminating evidence was that when she had first gone to the cops, she had described a very unique patch he had on his shirt in a certain area. And when the police brought him in and arrested him, he had that specific patch on his shirt in the same spot. Got it. Okay. After a three-day trial, Alfred was sentenced to the state pen for 10 years. Alfred was livid about the sentencing, proclaiming his innocence and dramatically swearing an oath of revenge against the sheriff, the prosecutor, the judge and the jury. He served seven years of his sentence and was released at the age of 40 in June of 1902. Unfortunately, no one warned the sheriff or the jurors that Alfred was getting released. And in the two week period after his release, both the sheriff and one of the jurors barns were burned down causing Uh something like $11,000 in damage because they had all of their livestock in the barn and their equipment, of course, which would be more like a whopping $355,000 in today's money. That's insane. That's so much money. Both men suspected Alfred naturally, but they were never able to prove it. So he got away with it. Shockingly, third wife Hannah had remained true to her incarcerated husband for the duration of his sentence. Hannah had been living once more with Mamie and Edward King, but they really did not want her to get back together with Alfred. And so they essentially said, like, if you're going to return to him, you can't do it under our roof. We're not going to let him come live here. You guys will have to find somewhere else to go. Yeah, they did the tough love approach. So she did move out. She ended up moving back in with her uncle, Charlie, who was the man who raised her. And he was willing to house the couple upon Alfred's release from prison. So when he got out, Alfred worked odd jobs. But of course, he always ended up fired. He also was like real creepy and violent. Like this one coworker worked with him at a mill. And I guess the mill was like four to six stories or something, or he worked on the fourth story and the sixth story of this mill. And his coworker said he would do really scary things. Like he'd see a couple walking down the street and he'd be like, hey, watch this. And he'd drop a chisel like from the fourth or sixth floor and try to hit the couple. Oh my God. Yeah, he said he repeatedly saw him do something like that and he until he was reported enough that they fired him. Like he was like taking chunks of like steel and stuff and like trying to drop it on people's heads. Gross. Also terrifying. That's so terrifying. Oh, like could you imagine sitting there watching this and it's like Yeah, I'd be like, dude, stop. Yeah, right. By November 1902, the couple had their own apartment and Alfred was driving coal at this point, but all was not well in the marriage. Just the month before, Hannah had consulted with a divorce attorney in Indianapolis where they had been briefly living. 
And she told him that she feared that her husband was going to murder her. The divorce attorney told her, well, you haven't lived in Indianapolis long enough to be able to file for divorce legally. So I guess you're just stuck. Talk about hating women. (laughs) Good luck. Try not to get murdered. Can't get divorced. Bye. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for all of your help. Yes. Wow. It was that December, so just a month later, that she wrote home to Mamie to tell her that she should not expect the couple home for Christmas. On Sunday, December 21st, Hannah and Alfred visited her uncle Charlie and some other relatives. That evening, a neighbor claimed that she heard the Naps singing a song together before bed. They were basically in, it wasn't really an apartment, it was kind of like a room in a boarding house. And so the next door person who had the next room said she thought she heard them singing a song to each other. There was no like fighting, nothing like that. But no one ever heard from Hannah ever again after this. That's creepy. Yeah. And the walls were thin and all she heard was the singing. So the next day, Alfred rented a wagon from a livery operator. And this was a guy he used to work for. So he wasn't like really happy to rent it out to him. He's like, ugh, this creep that I fired already, but whatever, you can rent a horse and wagon. He told this man that he needed to haul some stuff away and that he would be back (laughs) in less than an hour. Mm -hmm. So he also left a note for Hannah's uncle Charlie saying that they were going to visit his sick sister, Mamie, and that they wouldn't be back until after Christmas. So that was when he showed up on the king's doorstep to Edward's deep suspicions that Alfred had killed yet another one of his wives. So Alfred did not actually accept the invitation to stay throughout Christmas and instead returned to his home and began to sell all of Hannah's belongings like on Christmas. Oh my God. I mean, obviously this is like so old times that like you didn't get the memo that you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. yeah. Apparently they owed a bunch of back rent. And so he gave the landlord a bunch of her things as back rent. Wow. He also informed Hannah's half sister that he had received a telegram from Hannah saying that she was going to see Mamie in Cincinnati, but Mamie had said that she had never arrived. So he told the half sister that he believed that Hannah had just left him at this point. When anyone questioned him or tried to comfort him by saying, I'm so sorry your wife left, I'm sure she'll be back, he would say very eerily, well, I'm actually quite certain she's gone forever. People are like, oh, that's weird. That's that's a weird thing to say, man. So Edward King very much wanted to launch an investigation, firmly believing that Alfred had killed Hannah, but Mamie begged him not to pursue it, saying that the family could not bear any more disgrace. Like, obviously, Alfred had caused them a lot of embarrassment over the years with his constant assaults and thefts. So she's like, let's not make a big thing out of this because my parents will have heart attacks. Yeah. However, when the Kings found out that Alfred had remarried again in Indianapolis on February 3rd, 1903, only a little more than a month after Hannah's disappearance, Edward could no longer be convinced not to dig into Alfred's misdeeds. He's like, that is the final straw. I'm not going to let another wife get murdered. So his investigation 
is described in a really funny way. It's kind of like if you and I got drunk and tried to solve a crime, only we were also wearing really bad wigs at the time. <laughs> what kind of wigs? It's just, I'll get to the description in a second. It just came, this like one line came out of this old newspaper that's hilarious. So basically he did have a friend named Eugene Rankin who was a detective, but he was a detective with the railroad. And he convinced Eugene to come with him to Hamilton, which is where the couple had been living to solve this crime. So first they went to the house and they interviewed all of the Knapp's neighbors who told them that while they hadn't heard fighting that night that Hannah disappeared, that the couple had been quarreling for days. And they made a big deal about the fact that Alfred had almost immediately sold all of Hannah's belongings, like on Christmas Day, basically. Yeah, yeah. Then they went to the livery driver and they were at this point trying to get more information just about Alfred and they knew that that had been his last job. But they found out more when they went there because the guy was like, yeah, he also rented a horse and wagon from me the day after Hannah went missing or the day she went missing rather. So they're like, hmm, 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 that's another piece of the puzzle. But apparently they had been like drinking throughout the day. So they're like stopping at saloons while oh, they're interviewing people. So they next went to another saloon to ask for directions to Hannah's uncle Charlie's house. And they downed quite a few whiskeys while they were there. And the saloon keeper noted that it was absolutely not the men's first drink of the day. <laughs> uh, from Richard O. Jones's book. The two seemed rather suspicious to the saloon keeper, who was the brother of the captain of the police, especially Edward King, who was around 50 years old and had a long, dark mustache and was wearing a wig that was, quote, one of the most ludicrous sights imaginable, the son reported. <laughs> I don't even know what this wig looks like. I really wish I did. <laughs> King seemed like he'd had quite a few drinks and was trying to act mysteriously, saying that he knew Hannah Goddard was dead. So they did get somebody to tell them where Uncle Charlie lived, but Charlie Goddard was not home. So then this dynamic duo searched the great Miami riverbanks, sure that they were going to find some sign of the missing woman. And when they couldn't, they returned to the same saloon where they were greeted by a bead cop that the saloon owner had summoned. So basically he was like, you need to stick around because if these guys come back, they've got a story to tell you and really the police should be looking into it. So basically, I guess Edward wanted to like keep being like a private investigator himself, but the beat cop and the saloon owner were like, no, brah, you got to go to the real police. Like <laughs> Mr. McWiggy pants over here is just like not doing it. We got to get like the chief of police involved in this. So they did eventually go to the police at, you know, the cop's suggestion and the chief of police did decide to open an active investigation. First thing that the police did after confirming the reports that the drunk detectives brought him was to go visit Alfred and Mrs. Knapp number four. Anna Mae Gamble Knapp was a young woman of 23 who had been adopted out of an orphanage at six years old by a Civil War vet named George Owings. 
So no Mrs. Owings was on record to have participated in the adoption, which the book and newspapers noted that it was kind of odd that a bachelor would be allowed to adopt a little girl of six all by himself, which I thought was also weird. But then again, I'm pretty sure that's the premise of the musical Annie. (laughs) Isn't it just a single rich old dude who adopts an adorable curly-headed child? which was also coincidentally what some people called Anna, you know, obviously Anna, Annie. So the newspapers were not very kind to Anna and they reported that she was mentally weak and that her aging and sickly father had married her off quickly to Alfred to ensure some type of future for the feeble-minded young woman who was not able to take care of herself. Woof. Now, is that an accurate (laughs) description or is that like just uh, some patriarch back in the 1800s? I don't think Anna was helping her case. She reminds me of like the turn of the century version of the Catch Me Outside girl. We'll get into some of the stuff she says to the papers later on. So yeah, her vernacular, her way of speaking probably did not lend itself to people thinking that she was an accomplished and intelligent young lady. Alfred was living with a father and daughter in a dingy cellar apartment when he was found and questioned. After a frustrating interrogation where Alfred continued to deny that he knew where Hannah was at all, the officers arrested him for bigamy and hauled him back to Hamilton. Because they're basically like, well, your wife has only been missing for a month. You can't get married to somebody else unless you know she's dead. Yeah. At which point he was not very slick because he's like, oh, I can pretty much guarantee you that she's not going to be found alive. How? (laughs) That's like, they're like, how can you tell us that? And he's like, I don't know. It's just a feeling. Oh, man. Yeah. So while the police continued to search the river, they also gave Alfred a good old fashioned interrogation, which I'm sure included beating him at this point in time. In wigs? (laughs) Yes beating the wig right out of him, right off him. So they were told by the mayor to give him no peace until he confessed. And they called this interrogation a sweat. And during this sweat, according to the book, Knapp's name had also come up as a possible perpetrator in another case that attracted considerable local attention back in September. Uh It was an attempted abduction of two little girls, Hattie and Stella Motzer, ages Uh. six and four. No. They survived. It was not pretty, but these two little girls did survive. And one of the girls had identified this guy, Joe Roth, as their assailant. But Joe Roth steadfastly maintained his innocence. So he was like, I absolutely had nothing to do with this, even though the little girl said it was him. However, when Alfred Knapp was arrested and his picture was in the paper, they realized that there was kind of a startling similarity in looks between this guy, Joe Roth, and Alfred Knapp. At this point, Joe Roth is arrested and he is waiting to stand trial for this. But now the cops are kind of thinking with your prison record and the new suspicions, it could be you. To add some fuel to the fire there, it turned out that Alfred had been in exactly the same neighborhood at the same time of the little girl's assault. And he claimed that he had been seeing a doctor in the neighborhood, but the doctor had no record or memory of seeing Alfred. So they also interrogated him about Jenny, wife number two, 
And after three hours of interrogation, Alfred admitted to killing Hannah. Oh, Allie. I mean, he pretty much already did. I mean, we kind of knew that one. It wasn't exactly a shocking statement. Yeah, no, but it's nice he did it. This was his exact written confession, which is just bewildering. On the morning of December 22nd, without one word of quarreling or anything to prompt the act, I caught my wife by the throat and choked her to death. I have felt very bad about it. I cry every time I think of poor Hannah. She was a good wife, I guess, but I strangled her. Hey, you're... Old-timey psychopath accent is amazing. (laughs) I choked her to death. Oh, I don't know why I did it. I guess I didn't know what I was doing. She was a mighty good wife and a good woman. She was good to me. I don't think any man has had a better wife than Hannah. I choked her, though. Oh? (laughs) It goes on. I seemed to be in a doze at first. I seized her as she slept, and I did it as soon as I awoke. When my fingers once closed down on her throat... I could not let go, and I held on my fingers, sinking deeper and deeper into her neck. When I awakened, I found that I had my hands about her throat and that I had almost choked her to death. Her eyes were rolling and she was gasping for breath, and I was afraid to let go. Ah, I don't know why I did it, but I could not let go until she was dead. Can you imagine interrogating this guy and that's what you get? There's not even like we were fighting. It was just like I rolled over and I just choked her to death. And did they leave him like an ink thing and like yes, an ink he, pen this thing was, and he then wrote he like wrote it and yes. then they had to like go in their room and read it with him there? Yes. And, and he like signed it. There's like, I edited obviously some of these parts out just for the most salient details, but he even like signed it and was like, I was not coerced to say this. This is my real confession. So he also goes on to say that after murdering his wife, Alfred then rented a horse and carriage. He bought a box to place her body in as well as five cents worth of nails. He packed her body into the box cushioned by old carpet that he had found and ripped up and then he nailed the box shut. Alfred admitted to dumping the box on the riverbank and that he thought he was spotted by a mail carrier. He explained that he then went to Cincinnati to see the Kings and later sold all of his wife's belongings. He finished his confession by writing, Ever since I committed the crime, I have not been able to sleep and I have been very sorry that I did it. She was one of the best of women and was always good to me. We never quarreled and I had no reason for killing her. I don't know why I did it. Ah, well, I suppose I will have to go to the electric chair for this job. Bro. Yeah. So Alfred's confession was corroborated by the mail carrier who did say that he saw Alfred sitting on a box near a wagon at the river's edge. Despite the confession, the prosecutor, who was a young man named William Gard, who would go on to serve four terms as a congressman later, said that the circumstantial evidence was potentially not enough to convict. Whoa. Yes, he was a big stickler for we need evidence. We need to find Hannah's body. That's what we really need to find. Because they just have the confession and then they have like some people that basically saw him, you know, getting a horse and wagon, getting a box, sitting next to the river. Yes, exactly. But that's all they have. Reporters were now beating down the doors of anyone associated with Alfred. So this was like became a huge deal in the newspapers. Yeah. They were also keenly interested in his fourth wife, Anna, who is described as a slight 80 pound woman with a pinched face. So 
Anna stood by her man and she proclaimed her husband's innocence. She said that the whole affair was a plot by Mamie King to separate the newlyweds. She produced letters where Mamie criticized Alfred for marrying Anna as evidence and said that she'd like to, quote, whip Mrs. King for her slander. You bet I could do it too. She's the cause of all my trouble. She didn't like me, and she said some mean things about me. I'd go right to Hamilton if they wouldn't lock me up on the charge of murder because I'd stick a knife in that sister the first thing I did. Jesse, what are those glasses you're wearing? You know they're my new Warby Parkers. The ones you got from the home try-on? Yes, absolutely. And I love the home try-on because this is a totally different style than I usually go for, but I love it. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. This company changed the game when it comes to how you buy glasses. They're committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. With Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. And there's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Jesse, you know, I love having multiple styles to match my mood and look. So I love how easy Warby Parker's home try-on program is. Seriously, the fit is always amazing. And I am constantly getting compliments from friends and family. I've been a loyal Warby Parker customer for years and they just keep getting better. Yep. Did you know that they now offer a wide variety of leading contact lenses like AccuView, as well as their own daily lens Scout by Warby Parker? Oh, wow. That's amazing. I need to definitely get my hands on some of those contacts. And don't forget that for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. This means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work, which is crazy because glasses were invented 700 years ago. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. This year, don't let your FSA or HSA dollars go to waste. Put them to good use on Warby Parker prescription glasses, prescription sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash lovemurder. Okay, Andy, we discuss a lot of nitty gritty details on this podcast, but you know what's not talked about enough? Poop. Yes, P-O-O-P, shattering stigmas around here. Truth is, we could all probably be doing it better. Fact, two out of three Americans live with digestive discomfort, bloating, prolonged fullness, and poop issues. Enter Seed. I am a huge gut health nerd. It's something that we've spent a lot of time in our house learning about and something that I think the whole world will learn a whole lot more about in the years to come. Absolutely. And the one thing that's super clear, not all probiotics are created equal. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is a broad spectrum two-in-one probiotic and prebiotic that supports benefits in and beyond the gut, including gastrointestinal function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Many see improvements in digestion within 24 to 48 hours, which can include bowel movement regularity and eased bloating. Andy, never forget, you are a superorganism. I mean, you're just in general super, but we're all superorganisms. There's an ecosystem of 38 trillion microbes living in and on your body. They work symbiotically with your human cells. Seeds DS1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated to nurture your unseen inner world. 
Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder. Andy, you'll never guess how much subscription companies charge you every month. On average, it's nearly $200. Oh, that's actually insane. Yep, it's true. Luckily, there is a new tool for fighting back against scammy subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel all your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions, so you don't have to. Truebill empowers you to save more, spend less, see everything, and take back control of your financial life. Over the pandemic, I think we all added a bunch of new subscriptions that now we don't use as much. I know for our house, Truebill has helped us save a ton of money that we'd much rather spend on things we actually want. Or, I mean, let's be real, things that the baby needs. Absolutely. I mean, I wish this was around years ago because I'm pretty sure my ex was using my Netflix subscription for years. I mean, seriously, years. I'm so glad that there's finally a company like Truebill out there to help us with this. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped them save over $100 million. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash lovemurder. Go right now. Truebill.com slash lovemurder. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash lovemurder. Oh, so it seems like little Allie has met his match. I think so too. This is like, this is like you like, season two over here when he meets okay, his match. Cupid. Okay, murderer Cupid. Okay, Cupid killer. 100%. So yeah, of course, after she said this, the papers and the media attention just got even crazier. But it was about to get even more wild because the confession about Hannah was not the only thing that Alfred said. So he said that that one night, but then the police were really, really, really leaning on him to try to get some more details about where he put Hannah so that they could try to find her and also like figure out what happened to Jenny as well. So they're really interrogating him. And in the middle of this, he's just like, "Ugh, you know what? I'm just going to tell you guys. I killed four other people too. They're like, what? And Anna's over there like, he's innocent. <laughs> yes, she is. Yes, she is. She did probably sound more like that. But I don't know. I'm what going to stab all you like- motherfuckers in the eye. <laughs> What do people sound like in Indianapolis? I guess it's Indianapolis in 1902, though. They don't sound like it today. No. But yeah, she was basically like that. So he says he killed four other people. So they're like, we've got a ding dang serial killer here. So who did Alfred kill and when? So basically he has some written confessions to the police, which we will also talk about, but I'm kind of mixing them in with his confessions to the newspapers. So this guy, after confessing to four horrific additional murders, he then talk to all the newspapers about it too. So I have some accounts from the newspapers, mostly the Cincinnati Inquirer and some that he made to the police, which were all in the first celebrity serial killer in Southwest Ohio by Richard O. Jones. 
So his victims were three adult women, including his wives, Jenny and Hannah, a teenager or preteen, he wasn't quite sure of her age, and a three-year-old girl named Ida. Horrible. It's so horrible. He did claim to have strangled all of these women to death. When the reporter asked him about his unnatural passion for strangling women, the villain said, well... I can't describe it. I seem to have taken a dislike to womankind, and yet I like to have them around me. It seems that when I see a pretty woman, something behind me pushes, well, something in front pulls, and I am not satisfied until I have my fingers clutching their throat. So the first victim was Emma Littleton, and this happened when Alfred was married to Jenny and they were working for the circus. Alfred said that late at night after a show, he was passing by a lumberyard where he saw a girl of 12 or 14 who was gathering kindling. Alfred helped her for a little while while making conversation, but then he began to assault her. Now, he said in his confessions that she consented to his advances, but we all know that that wasn't true. She's 13. Yeah, she's somewhere between 12 and 14. That's absolutely not true. And also, he he ends up saying, but then out of the blue, she starts screaming. It's like anyone who is consenting to your advances would not start screaming, sir. And also, you have multiple traumatic brain injuries. So who are we believing here? Yes, exactly. So he said that he put his hands around her throat at that point to get her to stop making noise so that, you know, somebody wouldn't come running and be alerted. And then he hit her on the head with a piece of lumber that was nearby and he stuffed her body under a lumber pile. He and Jenny left with the circus the next day. So he wasn't around. They didn't suspect him. And he only learned of the girl's name from the newspapers. Alfred said that he had become acquainted with his next victim, Mary Eckert, when he answered an advertisement for correspondence. So I think that's kind of like a very old school personal ad type situation. The two went to a hotel room together where he said they registered as husband and wife, despite the fact that Alfred was still married to Jenny and Mary also had a husband. Alfred said he told Mary he was married, but he did not tell her he was a murderer. So apparently after this first rendezvous, Mary went to Dayton to see her own husband and she was gone for several weeks. So he didn't see her for a little while after their first meeting. But when she came back to Cincinnati, Alfred began to meet up with her every day and even introduced her to his wife, Jenny. He also introduced Mary to Hannah, who it seemed was pretty clearly also having an affair with Alfred at this time. So she knew him from living with his sister. So Alfred said that he and Hannah called upon Mary early one morning. He said that she, like, essentially she'd been looking for work. And so he offered to bring her over some newspaper that had some job ads in it. And when they arrived, she was like, oh, well, let me just run out to the butchers to get some meat for breakfast. And she left Hannah and Alfred alone in her home. When Mary got back, she was infuriated to find Hannah and Alfred in her bed. Alfred put what happened next in this way. When she was gone, Hannah and I lay down in her bed. We were still there when Mary returned. When she did, she seemed to find fault with the liberty Hannah and I had taken, and she said she intended to tell Jenny what we had done. 
I knew if she told Jenny that there would be murder one way or another, as Jenny had a bad temper and often quarreled with me about women. When Mary Eckert went out a second time for roles, Hannah and I discussed what we had better do. So next, Alfred claimed that Hannah suggested, well, I think you have to kill Mary because if Mary tells Jenny, she might kill Alfred or Hannah or both of them. So Mary clearly had to be eliminated. So when Mary returned, Alfred said that Hannah held her arms down as he choked her to death. They tied a towel around her neck and left the home separately. Until Alfred confessed, he had not been connected to either the murder of Emma or Mary. So this was all big, big news that was going to be like closing cases, obviously. Yep. But his next victim, wife Jenny, was someone everyone kind of suspected that Alfred had murdered. Everyone but the police initially, it seemed. Alfred said his relationship with his second wife, Jenny, worsened after they left the circus and moved to Cincinnati. Jenny had become jealous of the time that her husband was spending with Mary Eckert, And it seemed that Jenny was very suspicious that there was an affair going on, but she didn't have any confirmation at this point. But, you know, trust your gut. Trust your gut, ladies. But when Jenny found out that Mary was murdered, she began to think that he committed the crime. So she began to, like, when they were drinking or whatever, be like, I don't know. I think you killed your mistress, you know? Yeah. So Alfred said that that was obviously a big bone of contention in their relationship, but also that she was jealous of Hannah Goddard as well, and that Jenny had become violent and threatening towards both he and Hannah. This was Alfred's account of her death from the Cincinnati Inquirer. He said that she made life very lively for him. On numerous occasions, he wrestled knives and revolvers from her. The night prior to her death, as they were walking along Liberty Street, she suddenly sprung on him like a tiger, and in their scuffle, she bit him on the right shoulder. The night following, Knapp had some business downtown at the Inquirer office, and they set out together but quarreled incessantly along the way. Knapp said that Jenny wanted him to commit suicide with her. When they reached the 12th Street Canal Bridge, she said, here's a good place as any. I might have jumped off the suspension bridge, but I knew there wasn't enough water in the canal to drown either one of us, so I declined. We walked along the canal bank until we reached Liberty Street. There we wrangled and wrangled. But she was stuck on committing suicide, and I was afraid of her because I thought she knew that I'd killed Mary Eckert, and also because I feared she might kill me. Well, she kept on talking suicide until I just thought I'd help her. So I got her by the throat, and I choked her pretty hard. Then I let go to see if she had changed her mind, but she didn't even whimper. So again, I choked her until I thought she was dead and I tossed her in the canal. I know she wasn't dead when she hit the water, for she sort of struggled for a minute, but she soon went down and the water did what I overlooked. So he said that he went back home and the next morning he read of a supposed suicide of a woman found in the canal. Oh my God. Goodness. Just the way he talks about this. There is definitely something wrong with this man's brain for sure. So wrong. It's so twisted. The next murder is beyond heinous. So no old timey voice for this one. This one sucks, guys. Trigger warning, toddler death. Just before the attacks on the Motzer children in the same neighborhood, a three-year-old child named Ida Gebhard went missing in broad daylight. Several days later, her corpse was found shoved in a toolbox in a nearby stable. Badly mutilated and the bloody hatchet 
had tufts of the little girl's hair in it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was also found in the stable. When this occurred, Knapp was between prison terms and he was living with his parents. Alfred claimed that he was on the street mowing a lawn when he came across three-year-old Ida, who appeared lost. He said later that he found out that she'd only been actual steps away from her own gate and had seemingly wandered out of the house. Oh, my God. Her poor parents. Alfred couldn't say why he did it, but that it simply appeared to be a perverse matter of opportunity. Alfred was walking toward the stable and he said that Ida followed him and asked him if he had any candy. In his own words, he said that she had followed him in. He said that he didn't know why he did it, but he could not resist the temptation to choke her. He claims that he grabbed her from behind and choked her until she was dead. He also said that he did not assault sexually or rape her. He also claimed that unlike what was reported in the newspapers, he did not recall hitting her with a hatchet. But he said maybe he just had no recollection of doing it. Oh my God, psycho. Yeah. So after she was dead, he said he put her body in a toolbox And he explained like how he, you know, arranged everything on the shelf. And he did say that every time he thought of how that body looked, it did make him sick. Just like when I thought of Emma Littleton's body. (sighs) But after he stowed the body in the toolbox, he said he just left the station, went back to his parents' house. And he said, you know, I just don't know what to tell you. I don't know why I killed her. I just don't know. Wow. I also think he's lying about the sexual assault and using the hatchet because as we all know, serial killers escalate and their crimes get more and more violent and complex and they happen closer together. And I think that's what's happening here. And I think that, you know, later on when he talks about the Mozart children too, he says something similar. Like I did not have any intention of, you know, raping these children. I think that's like a tale as old as time no matter what era you live in, nobody looked kindly on child killer and rapists, you know? No. Yeah. And I think also he was getting a lot of attention from the newspapers. They were printing his photo. They were just like all over him. Like there was a million headlines about him. He was on the front page all the time. They were doing like they were doing so many photo shoots that one of the photographers were like, I'm shooting you more than I'm shooting like the best model in our area, you know? And they had like a lot going on about his hands and they were, you know, it was just like this whole big media circus for as big as a media circus could be when you just have newspapers, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that he knew that if he revealed that he was also an attempted child rapist or a child rapist, because he could have, you know, that that would have been a lot harder pill for people to swallow while they were like courting him and charming him and reading all these stories, you know? Yeah, yeah. He also said in his confessions, of course, that he murdered Hannah. He claimed that Hannah had given birth to a baby. It wasn't clear whether it was his or not, but that she had later killed it, which uh, there wasn't a record of this. So that seemed untrue. Okay. And that she had been unfaithful to him while he was in prison, which, I mean, bully for her if she did, dude. Like, I cannot believe she stayed with your ass, you know? Seriously. Yeah. So people, like I said, he was getting a lot of media attention and they're comparing him to... Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes, which uh, I feel like it's like an unfair 
comparison because the reason why we're obsessed with Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes is because for Jack the Ripper, we still don't know who they are. And for H.H. Holmes, I mean, he was like a murder corporation. Like he had created a whole hotel for it. He had a business. He sold some skeletons. He had, you know, the love column that he wrote. Like, I'm hoping someday I can make it work because he did write these like Lonely Hearts letters and killed his wife so that we can talk about H.H. Holmes because he's definitely the serial killer I'm most fascinated by. He had schemes on schemes on schemes on schemes. And this guy is just going around strangling. I do not think they're the same thing, you know? Yeah. H.H. Holmes was an entrepreneur. Yes, he was. And if y'all have not read Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, it's the best true crime book. And it really is so amazing. I think it's the first true crime book I ever read, actually. Really? It is. It was my taste. It was my foray. It was the one that whetted my appetite. Crossed you over to the dark side. Absolutely. So this all, of course, like I said, was huge, huge, huge news. And they ended up interviewing all of his family pretty much constantly. And this revealed that there was a pretty serious family feud going on. Essentially, Sadie, his sister, had her own axe to grind with the deceased Hannah, whom she claimed had gone to a wine room with her husband at some point, with Sadie's husband, and had sat on his lap and seduced him. And she said, and she told this to the newspapers, that as a result, she and her husband were now estranged. So it turns out that while Alfred was in prison and Hannah was living with Mamie, they did go visit this other couple at this time that she's claiming. And Sadie also went on to say that she found out that, well, you know, Alfred was in prison, that her husband had also been going to the Kings and giving Hannah money for some reason. So she's basically saying Alfred's wife, who's dead, had an affair with my husband and she wasn't exactly a saint. So she could have been potentially murdered by anybody, you know? And my brother doesn't know what he's talking about because he's actually insane. Like he is just, he lies about everything. He's always lied about things. He's a crazy person. You can't listen to a thing he says, even if he did do this, like he wasn't in his right state of mind. Now, Mamie was like, I agree with you that our brother is mentally ill. That is for sure. However, he 100% did this thing. And this whole assertion that you're making that she was like this loose woman that came on to your husband was completely not true. So Mamie's like, I was there and I'll tell you newspapers what exactly happened. We were visiting. It was a really hot day. We decided to stop and get some refreshments and Sadie didn't come. And the next day it came up that we were all having such a wonderful time and she wasn't there, but Hannah was. And she immediately like flew into a jealous rage and was like, did she come on to you? And like whatever old timey way she said it. I think she said misleading him. She was misleading him. And he was like, no, you're crazy. And so Mamie's like, that's what happened. And they had already been separated several times. This was just like the last time they tried to make it work. This had nothing to do with Hannah. And by the way, the fact that Alfred said Hannah helped in the murder of Mary Eckert is ridiculous as well. And that also didn't happen. She was like, honestly, Hannah was an absolutely pure and honorable girl. And it was like driving Mamie crazy that all of this was being written of her in the newspapers. So the family drama intensified when Cyrus, the patriarch, died and Sadie accused Mamie of causing his death by 
bringing all of this to light and disgracing the family. It's like, uh, I don't think she did it. I'm pretty sure your murderous psychopathic brother is the one who did this. <laughs> so ultimately, this is a story about hating women. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like any of the old timey ones pretty much are. Meanwhile, Alfred was having a jolly old time getting all of the attention he ever craved. Like I said, photographers were all over him. He was doing interviews, multiple interviews a day, talking about his crimes. And for some reason, they were just like obsessed with his hands. I'll include a picture in the Instagram. He had like these kind of largish, unsightly, kind of misshapen hands. And so everyone's like, oh, these are the... The hands of a monster and like these are the weapons that killed all these women and they made like a big deal about it so there was lots of pictures of his hands they even had like a photograph of his palm and they had like their in-house palm reader like say what that meant about him and they printed it so oh God, all of the amazing. amateur palm readers at home could you know draw their own conclusions and of course the palm reader said that they could tell from his palm that he was capable of deceit, had a vicious temper and disposition, was cunning and mentally sane, which I don't think they would have said the same thing if he had just wandered into their like carnival and been like, please read my palm. They kind of know what he did. Makes it pretty easy to tell what kind of person he is. (laughs) They'd be like, you're going to meet the love of your life in a year. (laughs) Exactly. Ooh, you're going to come into money. In March, Hannah's body was finally discovered in the Ohio River 10 weeks after her husband had dumped her there. Only she was 180 miles downstream. Whoa. Yes, that must be some river current, huh? Yeah, and he must have known that. (sighs) Wow, yeah. So despite the great distance the corpse had traveled, people were able to positively identify the corpse as Hannah's through a custom ring that she was wearing that her uncle had given to her for her 28th birthday, as well as the exact type of stockings that Alfred had indicated that she had been wearing when he murdered her. Whoa. That's weird that he remembered that. Yeah. They were like these specific like black stockings that had white on the feet. And though Hannah's body and especially her face were badly bloated as a result, you know, of being in the water for 10 weeks, because it was right around Christmas time, the icy cold river had actually preserved her fairly well. So this really did help in identification and, you know, the autopsy. Edward King was able to identify two scars on Hannah's body, one on her leg and one on her forehead that also indicated that it truly was Hannah. So prosecutor guard was relieved to have recovered Hannah's body and he planned to go forward with the murder trial of Alfred Knapp. I think also the insistence on getting a body in these cases is because it's not just like for the forensics like it is today. Back then when you didn't have, I don't know where telephones were yet in creation in the early 1900s, but they had no way of keeping track of anyone. You know, there was no internet, there's no surveillance, there's no way to find someone. So I'm pretty sure that you had to have proof that the person was even dead because they could always argue he's just a crazy man who's making up lies and we don't even know she's dead, you know? Yeah, I I know I always ask you that because sometimes the evidence is just so damning. Like it's unbelievable that they can't prosecute without a body and then you always remind me and I'm sure it dates back all the way to this time. 
Well, absolutely in this time. You know, I'm sure that they got into situations where prior to being able to hunt people down, they would accuse somebody of murdering their spouse. And then like three to six months or a year later, they just waltz back into town. They're like, oh, actually, I just took off, you know? And they're like, sorry, we gave you the electric chair. Oh, can't walk that one back. So they did lay Hannah to rest at a funeral on Thursday, March 5th. But this item struck me as very wild. They had an open casket. What? Why would you have an open casket for somebody who has been in a river for 10 weeks? They did cover her face and her hands with white handkerchiefs and they put like a glass top on the coffin and hundreds and hundreds of people, mostly women, y'all crazy true crime fans, just like me and you, Andy, came to view the body. And there was even an account that a journalist had where he was like pretending to be the funeral director. And some of these biddies were like coming up to him and being like, hey, can you just like give us a peek? Come on, just like take the handkerchief away. I want to see your face. And he's like, ladies, this is a funeral. How dare you? You know, and he's not even the real funeral director, but he like wrote about it, how there was like people coming up to him asking this totally rude question at her funeral. So, so crazy. It's so wild. So while Alfred was waiting for his own trial to begin, he was subpoenaed to testify at another one. This was, of course, the trial of Joe Roth, who stood accused of attacking four and six-year-old sisters, Stella and Hattie Motzer. So this is what happened, according to little Stella. She said that a man had lured them into an alley with the promise of candy and then had attacked them. And so first he began by knocking four-year-old little Hattie out with a blunt instrument. I couldn't find out what exactly it was. And then he grabbed Stella by the neck and began stabbing her with a knife to the head. And she survived? Stella is incredible. And so one of the newspapers said, had like a, a statement from her mother that said that Stella was an uncommonly strong child and that she like didn't like being hugged or something. And so she always like fought adults off and like literally could wiggle out of any situation. And so her mother was saying in this case, it served her well because this is a six-year-old child with a grown strong man with a knife. And she managed to get away from him with a gigantic head wound that she said made it hard to see because she was bleeding so much from the head and run to get her family. I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible survival story. Jesse, that is insane. It's, it's totally insane. So basically what happened was that she found some people who found her parents and then she led them back to Hattie. And unfortunately, Hattie was in a really, really bad way. And she was comatose for a couple days. But eventually, she recovered. She had to like, you know, stay in bed for like a week or something afterwards. But she did recover. And, and both girls did go on to live full lives. But because the attack had happened at night, six-year-old Stella wasn't quite sure who her assailant had been. So the police had like a scent trail because obviously the assailant had run away and he had the knife on him. So okay. there was some element that he had Stella's blood on him and they used bloodhounds to follow this trail. And it led back to this guy, Joe Roth's house. 
Now, Joe Roth was a 34-year-old horse cart vendor, and he did know the girls. He he was a guy who just like peddled his goods and occasionally he would stop by their house. So there might be a reason why their scent was on like his property, you know, because yep. he had stopped yep. and he'd given them rides, you know. So he was immediately arrested because Stella was like, oh my gosh, yes, it is him. But she's six years old, you know, and it was in the dark. Yeah. I mean, also it's trauma. It's so much trauma. She's a tiny little girl. So she was like, oh, that's absolutely him. So that's why they had arrested Joe Ross. So it was the those bloodhounds. And then it was also that Stella positively ID'd him. But yes, Joe Roth emphatically maintained his innocence. And there was apparently another witness that had seen the assailant run off. And he said it was not Joe Roth because he knew him from the neighborhood. And he was like, no, it definitely wasn't that guy. So when Alfred confessed to the murder of Ida, who was also a small child who lived in the same neighborhood, Joe Roth's attorneys were like, get that guy on the stand. And the jury will see that he's a creep. And they'll also see how similarly these two guys look. And so you know, that'll create reasonable doubt and we'll be able to get our client off. So Alfred, maybe just because he likes the attention, maybe he's feeling guilty. Who knows? He agreed enthusiastically to go on the stand where he did admit to being in the area that same day as the assault. And the doctor also testified that he had never seen this guy. So he's like, no, he didn't have a doctor's appointment with me. And when he was asked directly if he was the one who had actually attacked the Mozart girls, Alfred said only, I declined to answer. Honestly, I feel like he's like digging the attention like a sick fuck. It's so bizarre. So yeah, obviously this was very sketchy and the jury thought so too. So after only 30 minutes of deliberation, they voted to acquit and set poor Joe Roth free. Good. Uh, yeah, really, really good. But that poor guy, you can imagine in the small community that even when you're acquitted, they're still looking at you side-eyed, you know? And he's like a sales yeah. guy. He's a vendor. Ugh. Ugh. So yeah, I don't, I don't think Alfred will be quite so lucky at his own trial, which started on June 23rd, 1903. The prosecution's case was pretty clear cut. I mean, my God, this man had written confessions to the police. He had given multiple confessional interviews to the newspapers. Like... He had said it all. The prosecution is like, just read the papers. You do, I don't even need to do an opening statement, you know? They also brought in witnesses who observed Alfred selling his wife's belongings, uh, the livery man who was his former employer who had rented him the horse and wagon, as well as the mail carrier who had spied him at the riverfront with the large box. The defense argued insanity. They basically said that due to his multiple brain injuries, that Alfred could not ascertain right from wrong nor could he stop his impulses. And therefore, he needed to be given mental health treatment, not the electric chair. Alfred's family and childhood friends all testified to his head injuries and resulting bizarre behavior and health problems. Sadie, his sister, testified that Alfred was indeed very disturbed. And she said that he would occasionally try to assault members of the family even. She said that he once went after her and tore up a shirt that she had been ironing for him. He also went after her husband with a knife and at another time attempted to kill their father with a hatchet. And she said once he took her and Mamie out for a boat ride when they were children and almost purposely took them over a dam and would have if their father had not noticed and rescued them with another skiff. 
So let's in the future, let someone know if someone's acting like a psychopath so that they don't go on a killing rampage. Yes. You should have institutionalized him years ago, especially knowing about the head trauma. These parents letting their daughters around this guy, you know, it's like a, like a very Duger situation over here where they're protecting the son over the daughter's well-being, you know? Is that what happens on the Dugers? You haven't followed the Josh Duger case? No. Oh God, he's the, the creepiest. So he's like the eldest of the, you know, million kids and counting family. Yeah. And yeah. basically a few years ago, it came out that he had molested his younger sisters when they were just children. And that oh, the, my God. the parents had basically just covered it up. And then in the Ashley Madison leak, the, you know, affair partner website, he was on that while he's like promoting Christian values. And then just recently, like within the last week or two, he has been convicted of possessing child pornography. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he needs to go to jail. He's going to jail. I think they said he's going to jail for potentially 40 years now. I have not looked into it very deeply. So if I'm getting any details wrong, I apologize, guys. And let us know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they will. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of you guys have been following this case, but it is really disgusting. But that it did make me think about it, how those parents who had even far more children covered up what the son had done, even though it endangered their daughters. And they had all the kids on the show together and stuff. So they were forcing their daughters to interact with this guy on a regular basis. Yeah, that's disgusting. Disgusting. And I was thinking about that in, in this situation that clearly... The whole thing is like trying to avoid disgrace, like that there's for some reason, nobody is saying he's the problem. We got to do something about him, except for Mamie and her husband, you know? Yeah. So yeah, a psychologist and a self-proclaimed insanity expert testified that Alfred was indeed insane, attributing his behavior to potentially lesions on his brain that were, you know, the result of all of those injuries. He recommended institutionalization. The prosecution countered with the warden of the Michigan City Penitentiary where Alfred had served time. And he testified that he had had lengthy recurring conversations with Alfred when he was incarcerated and that he seemed perfectly sane. Oh my God. Yeah, this Doubt trial it. was apparently extremely hot. It is now getting into July in Ohio. Oh, and physically hot physically hot. There's no air conditioning. It is sweltering. And they said that some days it was recorded that it was over a hundred degrees inside the courtroom. What? Very, very hot. So as a result, people were fainting during the proceedings, including Mamie King and Alfred's defense attorney, Thomas Darby. Poor Darby suffered such terrible collapses and what they called brain congestion, which is like a brain swelling caused by heat. Wow. That he had to, you know, sit out a couple of days of the trial, but he was like the lead defense attorney and he really wanted to do closing. So they brought him back for closing and he's like standing up and then he has to sit down and he's like taking these breaks and he finally gets to the end and he's thanking the jury for their time and he just starts to like swoon. And apparently the prosecutor ran up behind him with a chair and put it down like just in time to catch him. Oh my God. Yes, yeah, so this was like a hot, sweaty, probably really disgustingly stinky courtroom experience. Yeah, no deodorant. No deodorant. Yep. 
So the jury was sequestered to deliberate at 5 p.m. on Wednesday, July 15th, and they reached a consensus at 4.15 in the morning. So they went all night and just got it done. So they were allowed to vote not guilty by reason of insanity or, I mean, just not guilty, but that wasn't going to happen. They could also vote guilty with mercy, meaning that he would be convicted of murder, but he would not be sent to the electric chair or guilty with no mercy. And he was going to get the death penalty. The jury voted guilty with no mercy. Stop. I thought you were going to say mercy. I love it. No mercy. Yeah. Which also guilty with no mercy is like very metal. So Alfred did seem surprised at the verdict. He very much thought he was going to get out of this for whatever reason. Apparently, like when he left, he was like, oh, bye, old chaps. I'll see you soon. I know why. I know why. Why? Because he's fucking crazy. Yes, and I want to be clear, guys, too, that, like, (laughs) we're not talking, like, oh, that person, you know, has depression or anxiety and, you know, or, like, has to seek mental health treatment because that's everyone. That's not what we don't want to confuse those things by saying people who have had head injuries are crazy. No, people who kill people are crazy. We mean it in the, like, crazy psycho killer way. That's all. That's all we mean it as. (laughs) Thank you for that clarification. I just wanted to put a little little subtext there. Yeah, asterisk there. Subtext. Yeah. He was surprised, but he did seem kind of resigned to it eventually. Like they asked him, they're like, do you want to say anything? He's like, what is there to say? Whatever, I'm going to go die. What is there to say? I did not know why I did it. I just liked my nails and my fingers being around her neck. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, that was really good. I should have had you read these parts. Gosh darn it. Gosh darn it, Andrea. Oh man, showing me up at my own job. So obviously his mother and sisters were sad. Even Mamie, I mean, like she wanted him to go away and she was sad, but like, it's your brother. You're still sad, you know? And some other women that were apparently saddened by this were some of his bizarre female fans because 80 women brought flowers to his jail cell on the night of his sentencing. I mean, Charlie Hoonan. I mean, he looks like Charlie Hoonan. Guys, this is crazy. This is so crazy. What is wrong with with us Some as women? people just like what they can't have. And he's going to jail, babes. So it's like, you might as well bring him a rose. I watched a couple seasons of Love After Lockup, which is like a terrible but wonderful reality show about people who are dating somebody who's incarcerated and then what happens when they get out. And there was like one girl in like the first season who was like, I love dating a guy in prison. You know, he can't cheat on you. You know where he is all the time. You know where to find him. <laughs> I was like, oh, honey. Oh, no. <laughs> what happened to you? Yeah. So, yeah. So oh, he got all these flowers. You know, he's still talking to the newspapers. Well, one woman who didn't attend the trial and had apparently lost her dedication to her serial strangler husband was fourth wife, Anna May Gamble, who wrote Alfred in September to say, I do not want you to write anymore for I will not answer. Send my picture and the clock back. You have disgraced me and daddy. Goodbye forever and ever. From your once would be wife for I do not want to be your wife anymore. Goodbye. To the point. To the point. Very to the point. I was going to say that. So Alfred's attorneys did try to both get a new trial as well as appeal the death sentence, but both were ultimately rejected and Alfred was given an execution date. 
Four days before Alfred was to meet old Sparky, he was charged with attacking one of his fellow inmates. Apparently, this guy was just sleeping and Alfred got up and just started choking him in his sleep. He's got those impulses. He's got those impulses. He would have preferred a woman or a child, but he's in jail. He's about to die. He had to take what was available. Fortunately for that inmate, another inmate heard and came to his rescue and then they called the guards. In preparing to meet his maker, Alfred enjoyed a last meal and then made some last confessions. Do you have any last meal details? I do. I do. And this is like, is the most refreshing and like healthy meal I've heard in last meals ever, which just goes to show you how, how times change with what we put in our bodies. You remember what mine would be, right? Yours would be brown sugar, crispy pad thai. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Salmon. No, it would be salmon. <laughs> you weirdo. I think I said Thanksgiving dinner, which I probably love even more. You did more say Thanksgiving dinner every with like everything. Year, yeah, every year you have Thanksgiving dinner with me. So it's not just delicious. It's also nostalgic. Nutritious. And nutritious oh, and nostalgic. Delicious. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, speaking of nutritious, his last meal was spring chicken with salad, watermelon, blackberries, and sweet potatoes. Psycho. He was also served with an ice cold glass of milk, which he is said to have oh. relished best of all. <laughs> Psycho. That was his favorite part. Afterwards, he saw his sister Sadie for the last time. And she asked him, I have always championed your innocence because you have told me that he basically told her that like he was lying for the papers to get attention and he didn't actually kill all these people. And she's like, you're you're going to die. I really want to know the truth. And he's like, yeah, I killed Hannah. But he did not admit to his sister he killed everyone else for whatever reason. He's just fucking crazy. I wonder if he told Sadie that, though, because she didn't like Hannah because she thought she had an affair with her husband. So he's like, yeah, don't worry, sis. I got your back. You know? Yeah. He's just bonkers. Well, that wasn't the only confession that he had to make. Later that evening, he requested a paper and a pen and he wrote the following statement. To whom it may concern. Joe Roth is innocent of the attack on the two Motsa children on September 10th, 1902, as I'd done that myself. But there was no intention of committing rape on them, I swear. Now I'm doing this to clear Joe Roth's name as I assaulted the children myself, but not rape. That the two not rapes I put in, just so you know. And that was his statement. Like, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. We kind of figured that out. But I mean, I guess they could officially close the case. Yeah. And that was good. And then there was like newspapers where the Motzer family was like apologizing to Joe Roth and being like, you know, we had a great relationship before this whole thing happened. Maybe we can all be friends again. And Joe Roth was like, oh, fuck you. Fuck both of you. Fuck all of you. Yeah, but what is, come on. He can't be like upset about parents. He can't be mad at parents or a six-year-old girl, you know? No, no. I was going to say that'd be great if they did, were able to like move past it, you know, and like. I'm pretty sure he said no. I'm pretty sure he was like, I'm fine and I'm going to have to move because y'all think I'm a child rapist. So I need to go get a new name. (laughs) Yeah. I need to get my face one of those mustaches that are attached to glasses, you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or or a face off. He could take his face off. (laughs) At just past midnight on August 19th, 1904, the warden asked Alfred if he had 
anything to say before he was killed. He was already sitting in the chair. Alfred said, nothing. And then the warden said, goodbye. And then Alfred said, goodbye. I mean, this is like a weird Dr. Seuss. And then the guard covered Alfred's face with a black mask and the warden flipped the switch. Six minutes later, Alfred Knapp was declared dead. And the physician on site said it was one of the most successful electrocutions in the history of electrocutions. The warden would never preside over another execution again, however, because less than a week later, he collapsed while getting a haircut in a barber's chair and died of a stomach hemorrhage only four hours later. Whoa, that's so weird. That's so spooky. After Alfred died, they did an autopsy on him. And a neurologist named Dr. H.H. Hope examined his brain and declared that Alfred had been completely sane. Doubt it. He said that his brain was in fine working condition, which, I mean, we're talking about 1904 here. So I have a very hard time believing that his brain was working just fine. Especially since he's killing people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Anna Mae Gamble reportedly told people that a child she surrendered to foster care was the strangler's child, but the math didn't really add up. When the child was conceived, Alfred had already been in prison. He was not allowed to get conjugal visits. So there was no way this was true. Yeah. Yeah. In 1906, she married a man who died three years later. Six months later, she remarried a Kentucky man named Oliver when she was 30 and he was 22. So you get it, cougar. One summer night in the 1960s, a kid named Rick Kennedy was playing outdoors with his brother when their grandmother demanded that they come inside. She said seeing the boys out in the dusky alley had brought back painful memories, and she launched into a tale of a harrowing attack on her and her sister, telling them details of the escape and saying that the knife wound had left a trail of gore so pronounced that her family was able to follow it to save her unconscious sister. That now grandmother was indeed Stella Motzer, now Kennedy, who her grandson said she showed them the thick scar in her now white hair that was still apparent. Wow. So Rick said that they just never talked about it. Him and his brother were like, whoa, but you know, obviously his parents didn't want to talk about it. So it never came up. So in 2014, now a very much grown man, he was planning a trip to Hamilton with his brother and he said some. he was talking to his dad about it, who was now 90 years old, who was now 90 years old. This is Stella's son. And he was like, you know what? Like, while I'm over there, I might like look to see if I can find the alley where grandma was attacked and almost murdered. Yeah. And his dad was like, what? What are you talking about? He had no idea that his own mother had been attacked by a serial killer. She had only told her two grandsons that one night out of the entire family. So Rick was like, well, maybe I'm losing my mind. But then he started doing research. You know, he started going through these old newspaper articles and it was 100% her and all of the details matched completely. Wow. So he formulated the theory that maybe they just didn't talk about it because as much as this is a survival story, it's also very traumatic, obviously, but also there was a little bit of shame involved because to tell the full story, she also would have to admit that, you know, it wasn't her fault at all, but she had accidentally accused the wrong person, you know? Yeah. 
So that was essentially what he said he thinks had happened. And his own father at 90 was so relieved to find out what had happened to her because he said that it kind of like made sense of things in their family. Like it was essentially like their the monster side of his family had never been a warm people and they always had like carried kind of a certain sadness with them. And he's like, now that I know that the family as a whole experienced this tragedy, it makes so much more sense. So Rick Kennedy wrote for the Cincinnati magazine that his grandmother, Stella, finished high school, graduated from nursing school and fell in love with one of her patients, Joseph Kennedy in 1923. Stella committed her life to serving the sick and she was not only a professional nurse her whole life, but she was also one of the only women in their neighborhood who had gone to college and one of the only um, medical trained professionals. So she would give free medical advice and treatment to the people in the community who couldn't afford it. So cute. Yeah. They also said it kind of like made sense because she was like tough as nails and just had this like steely demeanor. Like I can get through anything. And they're like, now we know why, you know, which is crazy. Yeah. That is a, an insane family legacy to uncover that your grandmother survived a serial killer attack. So that's kind of your Wikipedia fun fact this week. And if you're interested in that article, the article is from the Cincinnati Magazine. It can be found online. It's called The Devil She Knew by Rick Kennedy. So that's the close of our, you know, 2021 crazy Christmas killer episode. Whoa. In conclusion, I am just so grateful this holiday season that we have progressed as a society in medicine, forensics, you know, that we don't have terms like brain congestion and melancholy to describe what's going on with people anymore. And that guys like this can't just go around strangling and tossing people off bridges. I know. And to like prevent this, I feel like helmets forever and always and not just for riding bikes or motorcycles. No, I think, I think that all of our children should wear helmets until they're at least 30. That's going to be my new rule. (laughs) For sure, for sure. And this Christmas season, we usually tell you to trust your guts. But instead, tonight, we're going to tell you to trust your drunk, bewigged brother-in-law when he says he knows someone was murdered. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, you filthy.